Welcome to episode 262 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. We have a special guest star from the UK this week. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So this week joining us is Mark Radici from the Refreshing Views YouTube channel. And he was going to originally join us last week from the Autumn Equinox Sky Camp at uh, Kelling Heath. But uh, today you're just back at the observatory because it turned out that the weather went uh, a bit sour. It sounds like. Yeah, no, we had a we had a good time, and thank you for thank you for having me back on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to catch up. I must ask before we go into the star camp, how is the weather in in Canada? The mosquitoes gone, the black flies, polar bears. How is it? How is the weather? <laughs> yeah, we've we've exchanged the mosquitoes for polar bears as uh, as the cold comes in, but we've had a few frosts. Like to be to be truthful. We've had fantastic weather for this time of the year. Like typically by September 1st, uh, we are starting to get frosts and it's cooling off, but it's been like beautiful. And uh, I think our first frost is just a week or two ago. So um, it's been quite nice. Uh, however, today is not very good. It's extremely thick cloud. Yeah. Like I can, I think I was showing you guys just before we get going here, I can see across the valley, but it's, it's like a, a, a beautiful mist that's rolled in over the English countryside, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that always the way, isn't it? I remember yeah, speaking, speaking ages ago about a guy from Colorado and he said he observed for 300 nights of the year. And that was just too many nights. So he only, he'd only observed Tuesdays and Saturdays because the other nights he'd be busy or something. Wow! Can you imagine being able to choose which night you're observing? That would be that would be a real pleasure, wouldn't it? Oh wow! Yeah. Huh? Yeah, that's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. So tell us about the uh, autumn equinox uh, sky camp. So first of all, Mark, what is a sky camp? Is that basically the same thing as a star party, or are there are there yeah, some? That, that's different... right. Yeah, no, it's the same thing. So. Um, for those of you who don't know then, so a star party or a sky camp in this case, this is a, an organized event and they're typically held at a dark sky site. So you get out of the city, you get out of the way from the streetlights, get away from the light pollution. They, the a local astronomical society will set these events up and uh, there'll be astronomers, amateur astronomers from, from all over the region. And they're all coming there to observe, to image the night sky under these dark skies. And you'll have speakers in the daytime, there'll be trade stands, there'll be secondhand uh, kit sales. And then, of course, at nighttime, everyone turns all their lights off. There's a strict sort of no lights, no white lights policy. And then we all observe the night sky and the autumn equinox sky camp. This is in England on the English coast up on the North North Sea is the well, certainly the biggest in, in the UK. And I imagine it's one of the biggest probably in Europe. I don't know how big it compares to, to the star parties on your side of the Atlantic. But uh, I mean, hundreds, several hundreds of amateur astronomers from from all over southern England, from northern England, and even you know further afield. And it's really good fun. It's really sociable. When we're out observing at night in our in our gardens or imaging, you know, you, you are by yourself. You know, you're sitting there on your own in the dark, and then you go to these star parties. And you go, oh, there's hundreds of other people who have this similar affliction to to want to be out under the night sky and and to and to look up. And, uh, you know, you wander around and you, I mean, I've looked through, I don't know, 10 different types of telescope over the weekend. We chatted about different setups, different cameras, different approaches, different, you know, wandered around the trade stands. It's really good fun, really sociable. And of course, being England, you know, the weather's not always the best. And with the four nights we were there, we had, say, two half nights on separate nights of observing. Uh, and yeah, had a, had a really good time. Got the camera on at Star Tracker, you know, following the Milky Way. I have my little refractor. Uh, is there any background noise coming through? Is that? No, it's fine. Yeah, That's no, it. I'm, here, I'm my, hearing a little bit of that too, Mark. Through. Yeah, I'm hearing a little bit of that. Okay. Um, I don't know. Try to turn my camera off, see if that helps. Uh, so, he says there it is. Uh, so, um, yeah, we had a look through loads of different telescopes. We had a, a view through different setups you know we talked with other astronomers visited trade stands and you know we we i was there with my friend lawrence so i was set up to visualize my little refractor with me and lawrence has got this new approach where he puts a camera on the telescope connects it to his laptop and he does the live stacking so oh. he gets to be able to see in real time so one of my targets was to try and catch the veil nebula up in sickness you know the, the supernova yes. remnant and I had about 45 minutes to an hour trying to sketch it, trying to put out these faint details. 
And uh, Lawrence goes, are you looking at the Vale Nebula? So yeah, so he says, come over and have a look at this then. And, and there it is on his monitor, on his screen. You've got all the tendrils, all that nebulosity, all the wonderful colours. And he's sitting there, he's got a glass of wine in his hand, you know, he's got his feet <laughs> up on the table. And, and there it is on the way, oh, that wasn't much that. There's another one, there's a comet, isn't there, in Coma Berenices. It's, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's one of these Zwicky Transient Facilities, ZTF. Yeah, it's uh, Comet C twenty twenty two E three. Yeah, the one that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That yeah, one. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. or ZT, ZTF, you guys would call it, wouldn't you? Yeah. Anyway, so it's twelfth magnitude, and it's forecast to become at a sort of visual, maybe binocular magnitude. You know, it's towards the end of the year, and I, I couldn't find it in my little ninety millimeter refractor. Couldn't see it. It's it's down at twelfth magnitude or something like that. She says, Lawrence, have you got it? And he goes, oh, bear with me. And he types on this keyboard. It telescopes loose to the right part of the sky, plate soles, finds the little thing. And he goes, oh, there it is, little fan-shaped tail. Oh, my goodness. This is this is the way forward. Is this the way forward for the way amateur astronomy is going to go? And it was so nice just being able to see these stuff on, on his camera monitors. So we had the best of both worlds. We had my visual set up. And then we had his live stacking as well with the power of the camera. Hmm. Yeah, those, those live stacking cameras have always intrigued me. Um, I think some of the earlier versions, and I'm not sure maybe they're even still being made, is those Mellon cams. Uh, they were somewhat popular over here. And basically, same idea. They just do live stacking. And so, uh, you know, a number of folks would just attach the Mellon cam to the telescope and then have a monitor off to the side. And it was incredible to see these images build right in front of you. Oh, that is pretty clever, isn't it? And you get the best of both well, so you still get to go observing you know what what do you want to look at let's have a look at this let's have a look at that but then you have the power of the camera you know just to and you have you don't do any image processing he would just slide the sliders back and forth and just find something you know get the view looking just right and yeah just just chill out and there it is yeah oh right so my the dim smudge of the veil nebula it takes me 45 minutes to sort of pick <laughs> out against the background and there it is color nebulosity tendrils and you think gosh it, it is quite powerful yeah, huh. yeah. And, and the neat thing to me, too, is just how simple it seems to be, um, because astroimaging be, can be a very timely and, and somewhat complex process when you get into the post-processing. But the, the technology just takes care of it with these things and, and produce pretty good images. Yeah, it was quite funny. So we, 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 we've been looking at these objects and we, we'd ha had a few hours of observing. And we said, we'll go up to the other end of the campsite and, and see what's up there. That's where the, they call it Dob Valley. That's where the big dobs are, the Valley of the Dobs. <laughs> the way people walk into the Valley of the Dobbs. And uh, they were, you know, 16 inches, a small one, you'd walk past that, and there's a wow. 20, 24, and, and bigger Dobbs. And we walked up there, and one of our friends, Martin Lewis, he's very keen, planetary images, he's got this 18 inch Dob, and he's, I can't remember what we're looking at. And we looked upwind, we looked, where, and the whole sky had gone black. You know, this massive cloud front was coming in. And we went, oh, it's a shame, we're going to have to stop observing. And he gets his phone up, up and he goes, he said, oh, I don't think that's just cloud. He said, that was like, that's a rain front coming in, a squall coming in. Oh, wow. Um, oh, my God, we're like 800 metres from where our telescope is. Lawrence has got his laptop out, you know, we've got mains power, you know, driving everything. And we had to run 800 metres back across the campsite in the dark because you're not allowed to put lights on. And we got back just in time as it started raining and quickly packed everything up, all the telescopes, the camera, the laptop. Oh, wow. And the, mains, the extension cable just before the heavens opened. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that uh, I, I've I, I've had not quite you know that that uh, sudden of a rainfall at a star party, but certainly uh, some storms have rolled through where people weren't necessarily near their gear, and uh, one of our observing friends, uh, Rick Husiak from uh, Saskatoon, was at the uh, the star party. He's one of the key organizers. And uh, his 10-inch daub blew over in the rainstorm, and oh, he was in a little bit of a depression. So then it was on its side in a, a small puddle oh, <laughs> filled gosh. up with water. But it's, it's kind of a neat telescope. Um, it, it, you know, he's had it for a long, long time. And if, you know, and if it could tell stories, it would have a lot of them to share because, uh, you know, that's just one of many tales of that telescope. Oh, and the telescope was all right. Was it just wet or was it damaged? Were the optics damaged? Um, there's a little bit of staining, I think, on his primary and uh, the tube. He had built this telescope. So the tube is actually like uh, it, it's cardboard for cement piles. And uh, so the cardboard expanded a little bit, but it was uh, it was still 
operational and he continued to to use it through the remainder of the star party oh that sounds awesome gosh that's a lucky escape isn't it it is yeah for sure i'm just looking at at the picture of of uh i think it's your friend lawrence there with his telescope so that looks like he's got is that a takahashi uh tsa uh 120 or what is that? No, no, he's he's got a mead, a mead eighty millimeter apparatus. I can't remember which one it oh, is. Oh, so he, one must, the old one. he must be standing beside somebody else's telescope because that that's, I think that's a Takahashi that he's standing beside. So, yeah. uh, unless it's been rebadged, the, the the white tube. No, that's a, that's a mead eighty millimeter. It's got the blue trim, you know, the mead blue trim. I think I'm looking at the wrong photo. <laughs> ah. so the picture of us. What the one with the? Oh, I'm looking at the live stacking guy. Ah. Anyway, I'm looking at. Uh, so look down, look down then. So the picture oh, okay. underneath that. Oh, uh, okay. Ah, right. So we've got to point this out then. So this chap, the chap you're looking at, it's got about, looks like a, about eight eyepieces. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. So he's a really keen solar observer. I can't, I can't remember what his name was. And this is the point about going to these star parties is you get to look at the most amazing kits. And he had a set, that's a solar telescope. And you're absolutely right. That is a Takahashi telescope. And then he's got one of the uh, quark solar observing eyepieces and you can switch from the chromosphere to the photosphere view sorry chromosphere and the prominence view so we can do that and then he's got a, a diagonal you know one of these sort of uh, mirrors that tilts it off to the side and then he has magnesium on one side and then calcium on the other so you can literally can observe in in four different wavelengths of the sun you know one after <laughs> wow. the other absolutely amazing setup Wow, that's incredible! I've never seen anything like that. That's a that's a no, wonderful setup. Have I. Yeah, and yeah, it was quite quite fun. Unfortunately, as you can see in the background, it wasn't clear at that point, although the sun was sort of poking in and out of the clouds. But when we were actually up there, it wasn't clear. But yeah, that was his thing. He loved the solar observing, and then he had his telescope there. And uh, you can see underneath the tripod, he's got sort of an old army poncho which he used as a scope cover. And nice. then, yeah, he, he yeah he just pulled me pulled the cover off and he showed us a you know the how the setup and you can rotate the turret around for the different different wavelengths of the sun, sunlight absolutely amazing so lawrence's setup is in the picture underneath that the one i sent you underneath oh okay and that's the two of us standing around the table and the table there's a funny story about that because he, he obviously the star party you're not allowed to have you know sort of stray light affecting other people he'd be there observing or be there imaging so he has to put his laptop inside that cardboard box go oh. So you put your laptop inside the cardboard box and then the light doesn't spill out around other observers. And uh, we had our club trip to Tenerife. So I think we've been grounded for the last two or three years with, with COVID restrictions. We went off to Tenerife in the summer. And uh, one of our friends, one of our friends in the observing club, he, he had access to all these sort of cardboard boxes. So he nicked us a whole load from work. And we, we put these up. And his name is uh, Ian Piper. And when our, some of our luggage went missing, uh, the Spanish lady at the Tenerife airport was calling him Senor Pipa. So we now call these Pipa boxes. <laughs> Pipa patented boxes, Senor Pipa. So our thanks to Ian for the loan of these, uh, for these cardboard boxes. And they're now, uh, they've now, this is now their second style party. So they've been to Tenerife and they've now been to Norfolk for the Equinox style party. So thanks to Ian for those. And, it, and you guys shared a, a caravan there. I have to say this because there's a quite a bit of different uh, language that is used at a, at a sky camp versus a North American star party. So uh, it sounds like that you put a hired caravan on a pre-booked pitch, which to me sounds like some sort of astronomy mafia smackdown. So how does that work? <laughs> Well, yeah, it's an, it's an organized crime racket over here in England, isn't it? Sort of <laughs> yeah, I think it's just different language, isn't it? So we have, so it's a, it's a commercial campsite, so you can go there and have your, you know, your summer holiday, you can rent your pitch. And what they do is they, they book it up in advance with the people who own the campsite. Uh, and so you rent your pitch at the campsite, so you have to pay to book a pitch. And then we hire from a local company the caravan, and they drop the caravan off and they put the the plumbing in for the toilets you've got there you know the water and the gas and it's wonderful absolutely because i used to go and set my own tent up and you've got a four or five hour drive and you need to get there and it might be raining and you have to put your tent up and sort your sleeping bag and your bed out and then get your astronomy gear already whereas this time we drove for five hours because we're we're out of the wet part of the west of england so we're up, up near sort of uh, stonehenge 
and we drove all the way past London and got to the, got to the campsite. And you park up next to it, and you get out the car, and you get inside, and you put the kettle on. And it's already there. It's already set up for you. You don't have to you know, set your tent up. So that's definitely amazing. recommended. So uh, so for people that, that haven't spent time in England in caravans like I have, <laughs> a caravan is basically like a, like a RV uh, fifth wheel kind of deal that we have here in, in North America. But uh, in, in the UK, they call them. Uh, caravans, which yeah, so you say so an RV though is it, that's the vehicle itself, you know, with a cab. But these are, these are the ones you tow behind a car. Well, yeah, so they call that like a fifth wheel here. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, kind of, sort of. I'm I'm not an RVer myself, so uh, I might have the language uh, a little bit off. But uh, Shane can correct me because he's uh, he's uh, originally from the area, so it's big deal here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So, uh, how dark are the skies there at, uh, at Kelling Heath? I think I saw a Sky at Night episode where they were there, but uh, how dark can it get? And, not, yeah. not, not super dark. It's not, you know, I imagine the middle of the Canadian prairies must be darker. Uh, nowhere in England, I would say, really gets that, that super dark. Maybe up in the north of England, there's another star party up at a place called Kilder up in the north of England. That gets pretty dark. But, you know, it is a it is a pretty populated island. If we have to jump the border, you know, we take our passports and go into Wales. Uh, Welsh Wales can be pretty dark. Again, because you're, you're away from the streetlights. But, you know, the Milky Way was easily visible. You can see the beehive cluster, you know, in the, in the spring. You can, you know, see the, see the Andromeda galaxy easily with the naked eye. You can see the rift in Cygnus. So it is dark. You know, there's probably 80% of people would kill for skies, you know, that dark. But speaking to some of the old timers, you know, the town nearby has grown a bit and they, they're just putting their soccer pitch in. So that gets floodlit at night and then they turn the lights off. So it's not as dark as it used to be, I suppose, as, as everywhere, you know, development. suitcase uh, observatory of some sort. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the, the gear that you uh, you took and maybe some of you yeah. talked about the Bell Nebula already, maybe some some of the other stuff that you looked at through your scope and others. Yeah, so um, so I heard uh, on some podcast run by these couple of Canadian chaps about uh, having a telescope <laughs> in a suitcase. I thought that's <laughs> such a clever idea. So I bought one of the, um, uh, I think it's called Vanguard. I've got it somewhere around here. Uh, one of those Vanguard traveling. They're for photographers. Okay. And uh, um, yeah. I just got to cough for a second. One sec. <coughs> Excuse me. And I bought one of these photography uh, camera, and it's perfect because you can put your telescope in, and it, it just fits in. And then I can have all my uh, my binovia, my eyepieces, the, the diagonal, the Barlow, everything, all, and the dew controller, the dew heater, all go inside the case with my sketching kit, with uh, with the notebook as well. And that nice. all goes. I literally can pick up the tripod in one hand, pick up this. Uh, and it's all padded as well so nothing bangs around and uh so that's what i took with me and i've got a celestron c11 but that's in my observatory in the garden in england uh and it, it's a bit of a faff to take that because i've got to take everything you know the, the, these the big heavy mount as well and the counterweights so if the weather would be really good being a really good forecast i probably would have taken that but as the weather forecast wasn't that good i thought well i'll just take the a telescope and that telescope also went out to tenerife so it's getting traveled and i literally can't and that suitcase is airline portable so you cool. can put it in the overhead rack on an aircraft and get away to dark skies as well and i must admit i'm really enjoying having the refractor i don't know any other instruments that can go from i don't know 20 30 times power for a really wide field of view of the you know milky way open clusters but can also do 180 times power you know, looking at Jupiter or looking into craters on the moon as well. Nice, nice. So did you, uh, what objects did you look at and did you get any sketches off? So I did the sketch of the veil. That was my principal target for the weekend. Okay, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. That, so that was done there. Okay, I get you. Yes, that's the that's the Eastern Vale, I think that was, isn't it? That's the big sort of arcing, yeah. not the one next to the star. What's the, I can't remember now without looking at my notes. But I always go star hop from Cygnus, down to the, the bit, is it the witch's broom that's next to the bright star? Yeah. Um, 
two eyepieces to or an eyepiece field of view to the left and, and there's that big arcing past the eastern Vale. so that's what i really wanted to study and sketch and i also bought my i bought one of these uh, camera star trackers so i wanted to test that out as well and it's quite cool because i set the uh camera up on the star tracker and then i set my telescope in front of that and i was then sketching the veil nebula and the camera was recording 30 second exposures uh, so it actually captures me sketching the veil nebula because <laughs> it's tracking the stars of course the stars remain in the same place and it's me and my telescope who are slowly moving to the left of the field of the view and so oh, cool. stuff. so it's quite a, i quite enjoyed doing that and i'll put one of those put those videos up, up on youtube on the refreshing views in due course uh, and then what else do we have? Oh, I had quite good fun looking at Jupiter. There was a shadow transit, and I can't remember which moon it was, but one of the moons passed in front of front of Jupiter, and it cast its shadow onto the onto the Jovian cloud tops. And I think that's one of the things I really do enjoy is is just looking, looking at the planets. You know, if I go out, you know, in ten years' time and have a look at the Veil Nebula, or even a hundred, even a thousand years, it's probably going to look roughly the same. Yeah, uh, you know it's not going to change, but you know you get, you get bored on Jupiter. Just just give it another hour, and it's all changed its appearance again. Yeah, uh, yeah. We had a look at Saturn. Saturn's always a cloud pleaser, isn't it, with its beautiful rings? Uh, the usual sort of autumny or fall uh, objects. You know, the Andromeda Galaxy, Perseus, Cassiopeia, uh, and then the summer objects before they started setting. So through the Milky Way down to the Lagoon. I always love looking at the Lagoon Nebula as well, just before it starts setting now. Uh, before the Milky Way starts setting. So, yeah, it's great fun. Really enjoyed it. Do you so have what, the expression? Oh, I was going to say, do you have the expression on your side, sucker holes? Yeah, holes. actually, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, yeah, well, if you, if you haven't got a proper clear sky and then you have a gap in the clouds, so everyone swings their telescopes over to, to that gap and it goes, ha-ha, suckers, and then the, the, that bit clouds over and you have to swing the telescope over, and then that bit clouds over, so you have to swing it over. So they're called sucker holes because it goes, ha-ha, suckers, and moves over. Yeah, we uh, we had those here uh, last night, and then there was there was a listener that that wrote uh, yesterday or the day before, and they they were talking about how for pilots, apparently they call them sucker holes too because it looks like a gap, and then if you take your... Uh, you're, you're playing up through the sucker hole, you can get locked out and then uh, oh, yes. you lose your ability to, to navigate and you, you you become a sucker because you, you thought you'd be able to get back yeah. down. <laughs> yes, what do they say? It's better to be on the ground wishing you're up there than up there wishing you're on the ground. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So what sketching technique um, are you using uh, these days, Mark? You're, are you still doing the uh, white on black? Yeah, so I use uh, conventional, you know, graphite pencils. So I use a mechanical pencil okay. to draw the stars, and then use, uh, you know, sort of HP pencil and a blending stamp and those sort of paper blending stamps to do okay. that sort of nebulous, nebulous appeal. I have tried, and I don't remember where I put it, but I have got that white pencil stuff that you were talking about with Mary, okay. Mary McIntyre. Yeah. 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 yeah, I've been I've been giving that a bit of a try. I think I sent you a couple uh, images. Yeah, good. My yeah, it's it's coming along. Yeah, it's coming along uh, a little bit. So, all right, let's see. What was the biggest uh, telescope that you looked through? Let's go. What did, I see somebody in the background in one of the photos. Looks like they have a pretty good size, like six inch refractor in a white tube or something like that. So, what what were the biggest refractors and reflectors you had a chance to look through? Uh, so we had to look at. I think there was a five inch tack. Is that the one where we're looking down there? That was pretty amazing. Um, okay. And it is. It is. You know, they see why they called them tack sharp. You know, they're 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 really dark. But you know, sixteen inches uh, dob that was near us. That was a, that guy who's got the sixteen inch dob uh, brings it. He's made a dob mount, but he bought it second hand, and he has it on an equatorial mount at it at his home, and he takes it off the equatorial mount to take it to the star party. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. It must be, you know, like an artillery piece or something like that. A mount <laughs> that big to carry a telescope that big. Yeah, it must be quite something. Wow. But yeah, so I've had a look through 20 inches. So the chap who organised it uh, is a chap called Alan Marius. And if you go, if you get that wishing to sort of bang on about the YouTube channel, but I, he showed us around his 20-inch dob that is a red dob. And if you go to Refreshing Views, you can see how he built his dob. Yeah, and he's got the scope dog uh, tracking mount. So one of the sort of uh, UK uh, experts, a guy called Keith Venables, and he was selling, but I think he's retired now. A, a company, uh, a product called Scope Dog, 
and it's got uh, the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi, I can't remember which, but it's got the, the computer inside it. And he knows your sort of bearing sizes for your, for your knob and it knows where you are, last and long and time. And it, it does the Altas calculations so that you can keep on tracking your, you know, so you can have a big, you know, half meter, 20 inch knob. And uh, with, with Scope Dog, you can keep on tracking the sky. You know, it, it works all, out all the mass. Cool. So, yeah, so we had a look through that, and that was, I mean, looking at the Orion Nebula, from a dark side, I know it's not super dark, but it was, a, it is a dark sky site, a dark site, uh, you know, it was absolutely amazing, you know, when you can, it looks like cotton wool, you know, the Orion Nebula through my little scope just looks like a little cloud with stars in it, but you look through the, the 20 inch, and it just looks like cotton wool, absolutely amazing. Cool, cool. So um, you looked at uh, the Veil, you looked at the Orion, a couple other things. So was there any kind of really challenging objects that you guys looked at or, or were you just sort of sticking to the, the the big and bright ones? Well, what I like about my having the little refractor on the Altaz mount is that I literally can swing around the sky. And because we had these clouds drifting past, it was quite hard to, you know, find an object and go for it. Go, you know, we didn't go after Stefan's Quintet or anything like that. Uh, so I was trying to do it from memory. So I have the classics, the double cluster, um, so NGC 457, the one that looks like ET, you know, the one who's got oh, his yeah. arms out. Yep, the yeah. open cluster in Cassiopeia, the Andromeda Galaxy N33, all those sort of, you know, those, those sort of classics because there wasn't enough time to sort of star hop and, and find something faint and have time on target and let your eyes really get used to the dark. So it was just the classics, you know, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it looks like you were maybe, were you trying, was this a new eyepiece, this batter zoom or was oh, that? Yes. Just the yeah. You I need to yeah. about that. So do you guys use zoom eyepieces? Have you ever used a zoom eyepiece? Cause you guys are very keen visual observers. Yeah, I, I was. I have a, an old uh, what's called the Spears Waller, which was a Canadian-made eyepiece back uh, maybe twenty or twenty-five years ago. I still have it. Shane actually fixed it for me; it was broken. And yeah, I was using that uh, to do some public astronomy this past week. But uh, yeah, tell us about the. What, what's your experience with the zoom, Shane? Yeah, I, I have two zooms that I really enjoy using. Um, I have the Leica Ashfert zoom that I use quite a bit as a, kind of my nighttime eyepiece. And then I have a Nikon MC2 zoom, which is made for a spotting scope, but you can quite easily adapt it for astronomical telescopes. Um, and it's wonderful. And I use that one more for solar observing, or I, at least in the past I have. Um, what I love about the Nikon zoom is it's just tiny and barely weighs anything. So, you know, just back to the suitcase telescope, that one actually goes in there too, because it's one telescope that has, I think, a zoom range of 21 millimeter down to seven or something like that seven or eight somewhere in that mm -hmm. range but yeah they're super handy so so um i've always been intrigued though by the beta zoom mark so oh, how, how do you like it Re yeah. yeah really recommend it so i know it's on a good yeah william optics telescopes uh, i mean they're not takahashi sharp but they're, they're pretty good optics uh and what i really liked about it is it's so convenient because if i've got the binary viewer on or i'm using a, a single eyepiece of course you're constantly changing eyepieces mm -hmm. you know you gotta put this take this one out put this one on put the other one in the case make sure it doesn't get dusty or make sure it doesn't get damp uh, uh but with the zoom eyepiece you just turn the turn the little rotary sleeve and, and the field of, you know the magnification changes so you know for star hopping you know for um one of the things i've always struggled with sometimes when you're looking at the i'll jump back a stage and so i'm trying to be doing the herschel 400 you, you, is it worth just saying what that is the herschel 400 yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're familiar with it, but maybe just uh, give a Coles Newt's version for the listeners uh, in case they're okay. not familiar. Yeah. Sure. So uh, back in the day, was it 1700s, uh, William Herschel was out with his telescope and he swept up all these sort of previously unknown deep sky objects. And the Herschel 400 is the, is the best, the brightest uh, of the objects that was discovered by William Herschel. And it's a, it's, it's a good observing program. I'm quite enjoying doing it uh, in that it takes you off the beaten tracks. It stops you looking at these, you know, sort of going back to the classics, going back to your favourites, and it makes you go down and do, you know, observe things that you wouldn't necessarily look at. And it's this sort of structure programme. Mostly seems to be full of faint galaxies that are just tiny little blobs. But one of the things I've really struggled with on this programme is trying to find these sort of open clusters when they're embedded in the Milky Way. So say, for example, in Cygnus, which is nice and high and overhead for us at the moment, uh, it's full of open clusters and a number of these Herschel 400 objects and trying to pull out where they 
open cluster stops and the background Milky Way stars starts, it is quite hard. And the beauty of having the zoom eyepiece is that you can adjust that field of view, you can adjust that magnification. Think, ah, there's that's 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 which, which uh, that that's where the Milky Way is, and that's where the open cluster is. Or you can say, looking at the moon, you know, you can you can zoom out, you can see the whole of the moon, and then you can zoom back in and start to see you know details inside craters. So I found it so convenient, and we've often looked down uh, on zoom eyepieces; they're never going to be as good as a single eyepiece, uh, but they do have a certain uh, convenience just being able to zoom in and out. And optically, I, I really can't fault it. it. It's a good good eyepiece, good optics, good, you know, and then that convenience of being able to change the magnification. Nice. And it looks like you're uh, looking for another zoom eyepiece, maybe the near future. Yeah, so I've, I've been reading on Cloudy Nights about the APM Super Zoom. I don't know if you guys have been reading about that with some interest. Have you heard bit. about that? Yeah, 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 and and one of our uh, listeners, I can't recall his name at the moment, um, uh, might be Peter, but anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, he uh, anyway, he's bought it or is going to buy it, and um, definitely some interest. It, it, it's a very intriguing eyepiece. Yeah. So the big the the downside, what I didn't like about the Bard zoom was when you're at low power, so you've got the biggest focal length setting, is that the field of view is quite small. It goes down to, I think it's 40 or 45 degrees apparent field of view. And then you zoom into higher power and the field of view, the apparent field of view gets wider. So it's a much more pleasing. And it's a bit of a shame then, because, of course, when you're at low power, when you want the maximum field of view, it's you're constrained by the optics in the eyepiece. And what the APM Super Zoom is very good at is it has that constant field of view. So you do have a, a better field of view at lower and at higher power. Uh, so, but then you're constrained because it's only eight millimeters to fifteen, whereas the Barda zoom goes from eight to twenty-four. I think it is eight to twenty-four. So, but yeah, I really like it. I'd, I'd recommend it, and it and it is it means it's less faff, less hassle swapping high pieces in and out. Cool. Yeah, yeah, the convenience factor, you just can't underestimate it. And, you know, to your comment, too, about sometimes Zoom eyepieces get a bit of a bad rap. Um, there was a, a st- uh, like a bit of a study, I guess, done on cloudy nights, uh, an observer, I think he had an astrophysics refractor, and primarily used Zeiss Abbey orthos with it. And when he acquired uh, the Leica Ashpheric Zoom, he compared the Zeiss Abbey Orthos to the Leica for two years with this astrophysics telescope. And it was a fairly large aperture, I want to say in that 130 to 150 millimeter range. And uh, at the end of his uh, study over two years, he sold the Zeiss Abbey Orthos and he felt that the Leica did not give up anything to those eyepieces, which is quite an endorsement. (laughs) Wow, they would be pretty good. Have you ever looked through any of those size abbeys or those? No, that's definitely on my bucket list. I've corresponded with some astronomers here in Canada that do use them and that attend the same uh, star party that I've attended in the past. And we've just never been able to connect, but uh, I would really like to look through them just to see what, what it looks like. Have you, yeah, uh, Mark? I, I did. We had an observing uh, event local, just with our local club at uh, our dark sky site on, on Salisbury Plain. And uh, one guy did sort of a friend of a friend had bought along uh, three or four Zeiss Abbey Orthos that yeah they're, that's probably worth more than my entire observing setup. <laughs> yeah. um, and I can remember thinking yeah they're pretty good eyepieces you know you can't complain about those very sharp razor mm. sharp whether they're worth you know in terms of optical quality the price tag is is a subjective opinion uh, I don't think I'd go and buy any myself but you know they were pretty good eyepieces I must admit so if he thinks it's like a zoom is is good then that's a pretty good endorsement isn't it yeah yeah i believe the the current day prices for those zeiss abbey orthos are about a thousand us dollars per eyepiece so (laughs) that is incredible yeah so yeah if you've got to buy an avia you've got big problems then haven't you (laughs) yeah yeah bankruptcy problems i think for me anyway So at, at the Star Party Mark, it looks like you went to a, a few talks. I saw somewhere there someone did a talk on converting a, a back garden shed to an observatory, and it looks like you, you attended some of those talks. you want to just tell us yeah. a little bit about yeah, the talks you yeah, attended? Yeah, they're, they're really good. So that's one of the things I quite enjoy is, is sort of you get out and you see these talks and you go around the trade stand. So we saw, we saw two of the talks. Uh, and the first one was um, by a chap called Keith Venables, the guy who makes Scope Dog. And he okay. was talking about seeking the elusive, about how to find 
you know, faint objects and how to get the best out of your vision with dark adaptation uh, by using averted vision. Uh, disappointingly, he says apparently you're not supposed to drink before you go observing. Um, drink <laughs> or smoke, because that, that, that affects the blood flow to your eyes. Yeah. Um, but he did have quite a funny bit. He said you've got to make sure your uh, your sugar levels are high, you know, so maybe in the small hours of the morning, you know, take a break. And he said, oh, I said, my wife, Jan, who was, who was there as well, staying at the star party, he said, my wife, Jan, she makes these lovely chocolate brownies and he finishes talking. He said, oh, we're on pitch 316. And someone at the back goes, right, all around to 316 at two in the morning then to go and have these lovely chocolate brownies <laughs> that she makes. I think she was a bit nervous about the people knocking on the door in the small hours. <laughs> And then, yeah, then one guy, he'd got a, his solar set up and, and he, he, he bought a sort of conventional garden shed, a wooden shed. And then by taking the roof off and, and bracing us all on the inside, it made it into a roll-off observatory. So nice. you can be out observing at any time. Oh, and there's another thing you guys would like then. If you, do you know the Web Society, the Web Deep Sky Society? Yeah, actually, I've uh, purchased uh, the full catalogue of their uh, back uh, journals. Yes, have a have a look because they they turn up to these sort of events. And if you like your observing books, and if you like your your astronomy deep sky book, these are the people to go and have a look at. They literally have a a, a desk full of books. Wow, um, you know, which is quite quite good fun of all the you know Alvin Huey's books, the the stuff they publish themselves, some of the Wilman Bell books that are hard to get hold of. And, yeah, you know, they're really they're really hardcore uh, deep sky observers. The the guys who run that trade stand. Yeah, they're, they're, they they sort of turn their noses up at uh, cameras. We always say they got like moss growing on them, lichen growing on them. You know, they're proper stuck in the past. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I'm more with that group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, Mark Bratton, he's a guy we observe sometimes yes. with. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, yeah he's a member of of that. So I've been down to uh, to the grasslands with him and his uh, eighteen inch scope uh, quite a few times. And he's got an observatory with uh, a twenty two inch f three six there, uh, which is actually about two thirds of the way to our uh, dark sky observing site in the grasslands. So he lives right oh, right along the way. Yeah, the so yeah. Mark Bratton wrote the book, didn't he, about the Herschel? Was he? That's the- right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. He wrote two and a half thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I observed with him, I think when he was making, it was around the time he finished, I think it was, it was either right around the time he finished and he was doing the last set of observations and I was with him when he made those, or he was redoing a couple of them for one reason or another. But anyway, when he did the sketch of the veil for that book, I was, uh, I was with him when he did that sketch. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, pretty that yeah, an observing project and a half, isn't it? Oh wow, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah, that's a topic for for a different day. <laughs> so when cool. I was with the, the the deep sky guys, though, they they had quite a useful tip. So when I go observing and I sketch, I get my pencil and, and notebook out, and you you know I mark in the bright stars and I mark in the fainter stars and I mark in the nebulosity. One of the guys who's very keen uh, sketcher observer, he says, "No, he says I don't I don't bother with the." you know, putting the stars out. He says, I'll go to a star atlas or I'll get the iPad out with the sky safari on. And he says, and I'll mark the, the stars in their right positions, in their right, you know, spacing. He says, beforehand. He says, I'm here to observe, you know, the deep sky objects. I'm not here to mark stars on a piece of paper. And so yeah. he actually did that. And I thought, oh, that's quite a good idea. Because, you know, this first, first 10 minutes or whatever of doing a sketch is putting the stars in the right place. And if you've already got that marked on a, on a piece of paper, that does save a time at the eyepiece later on yeah one of the challenges i found you got to make sure you get your uh your, your stars plotted like in the correct orientation and that sort of thing and yeah the one thing i found challenging with that is you like i always found like my paper isn't going to be turned the right way do you know what i mean like you want to i always want to work with my paper in a certain direction and then i i don't i have trouble figuring out they're probably better than me at that i have trouble i had trouble figuring out the correct orientation of my paper when i was trying to do that so i just mark the stars now yeah so i think i'm going to start doing that as well because it does save time and effort at the eyepiece and particularly yeah. at this event when we had these these sucker holes coming through and we were trying to i was trying to sketch the pale you know if i'd already had a pre-marked out sketch i think that would have saved a lot of time and effort at the eyepiece and it means you can focus on on actually seeing the veil not seeing these these foreground stars yeah um and it looked like you were using a uh was it a uhc filter on the veil or was it an o3 yeah that's right yeah uhc so i tried an o3 filter uh and what i found was that the although it makes the nebula appear a lot brighter or the contrast appear a lot brighter i found it dimmed the stars 
an awful oh, lot. Yeah. So, so yeah. I like the UHC filter. I think the view is more aesthetically pleasing because it's still, you know, an eyepiece full of stars. Uh, plus, you get to see this nebulosity. But I used to, yeah. I used to, when I was beginning, I used to struggle. I could not understand when I read in the magazines or read in the forums about people seeing the veil with, you know, with, with their binoculars, with their small telescope. And I, just, and I just couldn't find it, could not see it. I tried and I go out and I, I thought there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my approach. And then and I can't remember where I was. And I said, oh, you're supposed to use a filter to see these I, these things. As well. <laughs> so I bought the filter. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's quite easy. It's quite apparent. You can see it quite clearly with a filter. And it did make a <laughs> massive difference. Yeah. I was thinking, I, I just can't understand it. I cannot work out why I can't see it. And everybody else is saying they can. And I thought, ah, it's supposed to buy a filter. And that made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've got one of those multiple filter selectors so I can, I load up the, I was looking at the veil the other night, I had the O3 and the UHC in and, and then a couple blank spots so I can flip between no filter, UHC, O3, and then go back and forth and just the slide. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's the uh, that's my favorite way of doing it. Like you said, the O3 can block a lot of stars, and then you can sort of flip to unfiltered and back to UHC, and then yeah, go back and forth pretty easily, and and determine uh, you know different features based on uh, the view that you have. Because even like the O3 will blot out some of the more delicate features, right? Once you've seen it, then you know then you've really been able to uh, yeah kind of dig in and and uh, and figure out all those little little wispy details that are there but yeah what a great sketch though now i really enjoyed looking at your sketch of it uh, oh, thank you in, in the show notes that uh, that you provided yeah that's a pretty good that's a pretty good sketch there for a 90 millimeter i think i say that's just so it's quite interesting because i went to keith's talk about seeing the elusive and i was thinking it's all like that independent verification i thought oh good i am spending time looking at the target oh i do wear a hood you know a, a hood over my head to block off stray light oh i do go to a dark sky oh, i do take my time uh, so yeah, so it was, uh, you know, it's quite nice to, to endorsing it. And it does, if you take, he, what did he have? He called them butterflies. Yeah, people who just go and observe quickly. Oh, I've seen the veil. I've seen the double cluster. I've seen the Andromeda <laughs> galaxy. And he would say, no, no, take your time. Take your time to observe and to, yeah. to pick out these sort of things. You actually start seeing more. And, and sketching helps you do that because it forces you. You know, that took 10, 20 minutes it takes to make a sketch to, to actually take that time to, to record those details. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really good point. I had a new observer out with me last evening and, uh, and, you know, of course I'm looking at stuff I've seen, you know, thousands of times before. So like, I, I forget, I put it on, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, like M110 there beside M31. And uh, so I kind of whip up there. I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. And then he looks and he's like, oh, I don't see it and steps back. I'm like, no, no, you got to like to see it for that first time, you really have to kind of go and look. And then I describe where it is, you know, and what it looks like. And then he's able to see it. But I think sometimes when we're showing people and we find it so quick, they assume they're going to see it just as quickly as well. Mm. But that's not true. <laughs> and then being able to put it in the right spot of your eye, because of course, if you look directly at these faint objects, you can't see them. And so yeah. being able to, to put them on your sort of sweet spot, the averted vision in your peripheral. Uh, peripheral yeah. part of your eye that makes such a difference as well doesn't it yeah so but how long did you spend like observing it uh and like before you sketched it and then how long did you spend observing it while you sketched it about yeah 20 20 30 minutes looking at it beforehand you know i'm not studying it intensely like a scientist at the microscope you know it, it's it's you know just just enjoying the view you know waiting yeah. for the clouds pass enjoying the view and about 15 20 minutes to put the sketch together nice Okay. And uh, so, yeah, so years ago when I was sort of starting out in sort of observing, I was speaking to one of the UK deep sky observers, Aaron Brazil. He's a, the, I can't his editor or chairman of the Web Deep Sky Society. And he was telling okay. me, he said, take your time, take your time to observe, you know, these objects. So I set up to look at M33 and I got my notebook out and M33 and I had an eight inch dob at the time. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a round, dim gray cloud. And uh, I spent about 20, 30 minutes looking. I think, I, I think with a bit of time, I can make out some of the spiral arms. I think it's all quite subtle. So I made the sketch. And I thought, oh, that's off. There's this little object here next to two stars. And it looks like that view of a globular cluster through binoculars, a little grainy sort of star cluster. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've discovered a new deep sky object or I've, I found a you know a bright comet that just happens to be passed. I was quite excited. And I looked it up in a book and it's NGC 604, which is... 604, yeah. 
Yeah, which is one of these, it's the equivalent of something like the Scutum Star Cloud, but in yeah. M33, one of these sort of star clouds. And I thought, that's amazing. I, you know, there was this star cloud. It's a deep sky object, but it's in another galaxy. It's not a deep sky object in our galaxy. It's a deep sky object in another galaxy. And I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't taken the time to do a sketch and take the time to observe it. So it is worth taking your time. And it's, do even if it's just a, a little crude sketch, you know, it does, does force you into that. And it's just a shame I was 200 years late to, to, to claim the discovery. I, I, I felt it was an independent discovery. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> I, think, I think I felt the same way when I, I, I was on a friend's 12 and a half inch and, uh, and I had looked at M33, you know, probably a hundred or 200 times before and was excited to see it through a big scope. And yeah, when I looked in, I was like, whoa, you know, you could see the spiral arms a bit. You could see M604 and you really feel like a sense of discovery when you're, when you're yeah. looking at it like that. That's yeah. Pretty very cool, isn't it? And that's why we do this observing and that, you know, although we, we all like to, you know, compare the size of telescopes and the objects we see, you know, at the end of the day, it's about going outside and seeing, you know, the beauty of the universe and being able to see a deep sky object in another galaxy is, is pretty cool, isn't it? Cool. Yeah. Have you guys so, been doing any planetary observing recently? Yeah, I was looking at Jupiter during opposition. Uh, the seeing was, I don't know, marginal. Uh, it wasn't great. Um, but what really stood out to me was the uh, southern temperate belt it was uh, just a really contrasty kind of brownish line uh, right across the disk. Um, that really stood out. And then the other thing about Jupiter this year is the northern equatorial band is just very dark and very mottled. Uh, there's a lot of uh, jaggedness to it. Uh, it seems it seems more uh, more character this year than maybe last uh, last year when Jupiter was around. Yeah, it seems to be changing. It's always changing, isn't it? That's what I find fascinating about Jupiter. You know, it's always different things happening. I mean, just, you know, hour by hour, but also season by season. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's one of my, that's one of my reasons, or one of the reasons why I love looking at it, because it does change so much. And, you know, with the Mars opposition coming, um, you know, while Mars doesn't change from a cloud perspective, although I guess there are clouds, um, what I appreciate about Mars is just its rotation. And we see so much, so many different surface features there too. So I'm yes. quite excited for that. I managed to last milestone position from, from the observatory with the C11. I managed to catch the volcanoes, you know, the, the Tharsis volcanoes and Olympus Mons. Oh, wow. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's, that's, that's quite, that was an amazing sight. And what was interesting was that one of the volcanoes, I think it's Arceobons, had what the white cloud, the orographic cloud forming on its summit as no. the winds blew up the mountain. And so I imaged it, I sent it off to the BAA. And I can remember going to the work the next morning and people going, oh, yeah, morning, Mark, how are you? You have a good night. And I said, oh, I said, yeah, I wouldn't believe what I was doing yesterday. I said, I was photographing volcanoes in my garden. I said, well, <laughs> what do you mean you're photographing volcanoes here in your garden, in your backyard? I said, oh, sorry. I said, they're on another planet. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. And a, again, that, that, that gives me such a rush as well to think, wow, I've, you know, you photograph volcanoes on another planet and you can see, you know, clouds forming on their, on their summit slopes. That's, that's, that's quite a rush. Yeah. That's an incredible observation. There, well, there's my, there's my sketch of Jupiter from, uh, oh, lovely. September 11th. It's, I, I don't have that much experience observing it yet, but, uh, yeah, I got the great red spot and then I got the, uh, sort of the central meridian, uh, brightening my lines aren't totally straight but uh, forgive me for that yeah yeah you can see the you recorded the sort of the cloud turbulence uh, yeah that's proceeding or following on on the on, on the great red spot isn't it you know as it goes through the equatorial belt yeah yeah exactly i think it's following yeah that's following yeah so yeah and then i got one i wonder if my this is just in our in our sketching form and then i did a sketch of mars uh, the night before so there's oh my, nice oh look at that yeah so yeah i just had an awesome awesome night and was able to get about 145 power and kind of get everything you can get with 145 power on mars yeah it's pretty pretty neat yeah pretty sorry cool, don't mean it? to don't mean to drop in on all your observations there no 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 i love looking at that so i put a camera on my c11 and that that just takes you know without was it 100 frames a second uh, and then the software just rejects all the blurry ones. So you just stack and process the sharp ones. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, I look at the, you know, the old pencil drawings. And I think, oh, my goodness, you, you're recording sort of the same sort of details as well. That's that's really cool. Yeah, except I think I was telling somebody I was 20 to 30 minutes at the eyepiece to get uh, 20 to 30 good seconds to, to record those. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what yeah. the software is doing. Of course, I suppose if you're using these high-speed cameras, these video cameras, that's what the software is doing, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I always like, you know, I was listening to some of your, like, well, whenever you say, you know, you're observing or whatever, and you're like, you know, you know, you like having the observatory so you can put on your your pot of your your tea and then go out and, and observe. But uh, you and I wouldn't get along very well because I like to set up and then make my tea, and you like to make your tea and then observe. So I don't think we'd get on very <laughs> Well, if we were observing together, Mark, unfortunately. Oh, you see, well, we just had to have two, wouldn't we? Have one before, <laughs> one. But I was, I was, I, when I built the observatory, when I built, when I paid for someone to come and build my observatory, it, that's the thing that I really enjoy is that I'm, I'm outside in like three minutes. It takes me longer to find my keys and to make a tea and to, you know, put my coat on than it does to set up. You know, I, I don't have to set up. It's already there. It's already aligned. Just put yeah. power on, roll the roof back and, and we're done. Yeah, I look I look forward to getting one someday as I yeah as I get more and more gear and in like last night for example we we were observing we were playing uh, sucker hole hopscotch and uh, and then tore down and then Mike came in and we were chatting for ten or fifteen minutes after the other gentleman left and just catching up and then we he went out to the car. He said, yeah, have a good night. I started getting ready for bed and I never heard his car start up. So I thought, oh, geez, maybe his battery died because that certainly happened to all of us. And uh, so I hopped out and it was totally clear. And he was out there doing binocular astronomy. (laughs) So so we went out and took a look at the stars for another five minutes. But all the scopes, of course, are all packed away by now. And it's like, oh, shoot, you know, that was probably the best 10 minutes of the night, you know. (laughs) Of course, you know, the clouds moved in just as we tore down. So always the way. But an observatory, you could just roll that roof back and uh, and take a cap off and get going again would be awesome. Yeah. Oh, it is. And if I'm tired from work uh, and I think, oh, can I be bothered to set up? And you have, well, I'll just go and have a quick 10 minutes. I'll just have a look at the moon or whatever. And then, you know, suddenly it's like two and a half hours later. I think, oh, yeah. I'm going to go in now. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so it looks like you were submitting some of your um your your observations uh or imaging through the telescope of uh of jupiter and mars you, it looks like you were submitting those to baa or something like that yeah that's right so i remember the baa the british astronomical association as you can probably tell by my accents uh and uh there's the association of lunar and planetary observers alpo that's the, that's an american organization so that yeah. I send them off. And I was saying on those pictures I sent you, uh, it's amazing to see the difference uh, around the Great Red Spot. It's only a sort of a month, you know, 7th of August to the 10th, of, and the sort of the dark band around the Great Red Spot and some of the little bits that have flaked off the Great Red Spot. You know, it's changed in, in only sort of a matter of weeks from, from what yeah. that's done. And what's yeah. quite interesting, so the director of the BAA is a guy called uh, Dr. John Rogers, and he works, he collates this sort of amateur imagery. Uh, and there's a space probe called Juno that's in orbit around Jupiter. Uh, and it's uh, it's measuring the magnetic field. So it's got to skim over the cloud tops and then go right out into the depths of, you know, sort of the Javian orbit. So it skims over only a few thousand kilometers above the cloud tops. Mm. And he collates that amateur imagery so that when they're zooming, you know, rushing over the Javian surface, the camera knows what it's it's looking at and what it's going to pick up. And so that's collated from amateur imagery. So my my images, of which I've only submitted a handful because of the weather we've had over the last few weeks, last few months, uh, is all put together with, with observers from all over the world, not not mm. just my images, I hasten to add. Uh, so it's nice to think, you know, just a little footnote in, in, in a space probe is, is, is yeah, that mission has is, is come from my images. So I'm quite, quite chuffed with that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, it's because of the BAA, the British Astronomical uh, Association, that I'm that I'm here talking to you today. Because when I was uh, spending my summer uh, while I was doing archaeology in England, they were set up at the British Museum, and I'd always sort of had a had a passing interest in astronomy and then i can't remember they handed out like a basic star chart and something like that and then went back to where our uh where our college was and we were out in the middle of um you know the english countryside back in the early 90s and it was pretty dark there so i t- pulled out the map and kind of had a look at that and look at the stars and then uh sort of uh yeah it was one of those things that kind of really sort of pushed me forward to maybe um think about learning the stars a little bit better yeah 
for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great wow, order. that's a pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. pretty cool way yeah. to go. That's a so if you're an archaeologist and they have to say your life is in ruins. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't stick with archaeology, but uh, yeah, my life ended up very similar. Yeah. <laughs> and now look at the state you're in. There are telescopes everywhere. You bought a place in the countryside to get away from the streetlights. Yeah, with telescopes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> my wife always says, like, we live in we live in uh, a room full of telescopes. But those are beautiful images of Mars that you took. Yeah, those are awesome. And so it's getting bigger. You have you have three images of Mars from the top left to the bottom right. And it uh, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. What was the time span that you took those images over? Oh, I'd have to look it up. Oh, bear with me. So I haven't actually seen in front of me. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot or anything with that. No, no. I, 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 Your Honor, I have nothing further to add. Uh, 7th of July, yeah. sorry, 9th of July and to the 11th of September. Oh, okay. Oh, two months. Yeah. So, the, so your last image was taken um the same day because of our time change so that was taken within hours of of my sketch that i showed you yeah so what let's have a look at mine so mine was taken at on the 11th of september at quarter past 12 in the morning so 0013 universal time okay so mine was at seven eight mine was at nine thirty five a.m your time on the yeah, so about, I guess, about maybe uh, 20 or 36, no, like, yeah, 30, 36 hours difference. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So that's half a rotation, then. So, yeah. So you'll be catching the other side. That's right. Yeah, that's inter- Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just thought, yeah, you can see actually in your image how much more detail you can see. And I was surprised at how much uh, detail I can see. But you can see on your uh, on the northern hemisphere there, it looks like you have – is south up in the bottom image or is south No, that's down? North, north up. That's conventional. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you can see like that's a bit of a polar hood. And yeah, on the bottom, it almost looks like there's a bit of, uh, of a dust cloud or something uh, stretching yeah. across the... So, so yeah. what's cool about that? That's uh, uh, Certis Major. That yeah, that's... Dark Peninsula. And uh, yeah. that's where the uh, Perseverance and Ingenuity are, top, top right-hand corner of, uh, of Certis Major. Yeah, and so this is through your uh, C11, is that that's, that's correct? That's right, yes, yeah, yeah, in the observatory. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I was very excited to see, because I had watched your video. In fact, when we chatted the last time, you said you had made a video about your observatory, but you hadn't publicly posted it because um, just one reason or another. And you sent me the link, and I watched the video, and then you, you rejigged it, and you made it publicly available. I've actually watched it two or three times since then, because I really like your observatory. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, I like how you have, like, the 8 by 10 section, and then you have, like, a 6 by 10 or something like that that's like a office warm room kind of space. It's sort of this this beautiful uh, spot to kind of hang out and do some work and, and have your star charts and maybe get warm or maybe a cup of tea like you say and then um then recently i saw and i watched this video a couple times too because i love 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 the setup with the new skywatcher mount and your magres 90 and the c11 can you tell us about that setup and kind of give a bit of a review now that you've had it going for a short while yeah, so well, unfortunately, I bought it over summer, so I haven't used it as much as I'd like, simply because the the days are so long. Up, we're up at fifty one degrees north. Yeah, but yeah, I got I got frustrated because I got the C eleven, which is a very powerful instrument. It's got this F, so it's got a, it's F ten. So yeah, it's quite a long focal length, so you really it's really best for high power viewing. And I've got the refractor, which of course is very wide angle field of view, very low power sort of instrument. And I got frustrated having to move back and forth between the two. And then oh, really? Yeah, and so what I love being able to do is I can have the camera, say, for example, in the C11, I could be looking at Jupiter, and I can have the eyepiece uh, on the on the, on the, on the Apo, uh, and I can enjoy the visual side of it as well, so I can get the best of both worlds. And so that's really nice. So it looks like a sort of an artillery gun, an anti-aircraft gun, because you've got the two telescopes mounted on the, on the same mount, and you can then, you know, uh, have, have both instruments going at the same time. Cool. Uh, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. It's a big step up. Uh, my old EQ6 Skywatcher EQ6 must be, uh, I don't know, getting off of 10 years old now. And yeah. the sort of incremental design changes, the improvements that Skywatcher have made, that the, what do you call it? AZ, AZ as I call it. Yeah. AZ, AZ, AZ EQ6 is, is quite, quite apparent. And it's so much quieter. 
I'm always yeah. worried. I'm doing a slew at like two in the morning, you know, if the weather's nice and we've got their windows open because it's so hot at, at night. And there's me slewing across the sky like a, you know, the telescope sounds like a coffee grinder. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and the new one, new one, thankfully, is a lot quieter. So that's good for my neighbor's point of view. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Well, I think unfortunately we're getting short in time here, folks. Shane, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to jump in on uh, before we uh, get to the end. Oh, just enjoyed the conversation as always, Mark. Great to hear from you. And uh, really, really interesting to hear about uh, your star camp. Um, I'm always intrigued by different uh, star camps slash star parties that occur and uh, super interesting to hear about one on uh, the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. Yeah. I've, we, we always read with some envy, you know, Texas star party, winter star party. So I don't think our skies is, well, they're not as far south or as, or as dark, but we still have a good time. And that's really, at the end of the day, what the hobby is about, isn't it? Absolutely. Exactly. Well, do, do Mark, you guys have, I was gonna, sorry to interrupt. Do you, do you no, have I, star parties on, on where, where are your star parties in Canada? The one that's closest to us is known as the Saskatchewan Summer Star Party, and it's in an interprovincial park called Cypress Hills. Uh, it is in, uh, it's always new moon of August, and there's typically about 300 people that attend that, primarily our province and the neighboring province of Alberta. Uh, but there's uh, a number of Americans that come up because it's very close to the U.S. border with Canada. So uh, folks from Montana and other areas will come up there as well. And uh, it's it's usually a really good party with lots of uh, interesting talks as well. Um, and then there's a number of other star parties uh, near and around us. Um, uh, there's one in Jasper that's coming up. Uh, there's the Mount Kobau one that Chris, you've attended with Mike in the past. Um, yeah, I think we're going to try to do next year. Yeah, I'm sure there's one in Manitoba, but I'm not sure what that one. Yeah, is. they have one down at Spruce Woods, which is uh, Canada's most recent uh, dark sky preserve. That's about four hours from us. I think might try to get over there next year as well. Yeah, should be good. Yeah, you should come over sometime, Mark. See some see some dark skies. Oh, lovely! I would love to come over. I did. I have. Uh, spent some time in Canada, so I, I do like your part of the world. The only thing is, of course, at our star parties, we don't have to be worried about being eaten by bears. <laughs> well, where we live, it's it's bear-free, so you, you'll be safe. Oh, that sounds perfect then. And then Maybe. the black flies, mosquitoes, forest fires, what about all No that? black flies. We don't have black flies here. The mosquito is on the flag, and uh, yeah. <laughs> the mosquito, I think, is the provincial bird here, isn't it, uh, Shane? Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're they're quite uh, they're quite ferocious, and they get extremely upset if I don't come out to my cabin to feed them every week. Oh so. wow! <laughs> I do remember you saying about observing, wasn't it, uh, grasslands and and listening to the bison on the other yeah. side of the fence? I thought, wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this year we didn't have them, but last year um, we set up outside the fence and uh, last year they were in the opposite field to us, which would be almost, I mean, the field there is so big that it would be almost like on the other, in the other county uh, in England, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, they were, they were within eye shot. They were like maybe uh, three quarters of a mile away. Uh, so yeah, and you can hear them kind of roaming around. There'd be like a hundred of them roaming around like a herd of bison and they put a parks person as a sentinel to to keep watch to make sure they they're not going to head our way and and if they do then we have to make our way somewhere safe that that has never happened so they're they're well-behaved bison <laughs> that's good. So, yeah, yeah that sounds pretty cool then to be to be observing where you're not in england where, where the top predator humans and uh, you know you go to africa or north america and you know suddenly we're not top predators anymore yeah, you're about four or five down here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it would be awesome if you could sometime. You can, you can, you don't, you're not able to hire a caravan on a pitch, but you can get an, an authentic, which is like a giant canvas tent. And uh, I think it even has a hot plate in there to make a, a cup of tea on. So you'd feel right at home, sure, one way or another. I'll bring my own tea bags then. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, well, with that, uh, Mark and Shane, unless you folks have anything else to add, perhaps we'll wrap up so we're at just about an hour. Uh, so, I, I could talk for another hour or two about astronomy, but yeah, I guess we better go. All right. Well, sounds uh, sounds good. Well, look, uh, thanks, Shane. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, yeah, for those who haven't already, uh, be sure to subscribe and check out the Refreshing Views uh, YouTube channel. 
with Mark Radici. Um, it's one of uh, the only other really sort of uh, visual observing and other sort of interesting astronomy related channels out there. Uh, it's actually amazing. I mean, I, we know Mark and, and we collaborate uh, the odd time, but when I'm doing my Google search, which is often the Refreshing Views channel uh, will be coming up anyway because often Mark's uh, sort of uh, interest in a lot of the same stuff we are. So I think people would enjoy it. So yeah, so check out Refreshing Views. And if you want, you can always send us an email at actualastronomy at gmail.com with your observations. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.